Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we are going to do that in one of my favorite ways, which is a sermon review. Now, in case you're new here and you don't know what a sermon review is, let me walk you through the process. So, each week we cover a variety of different pastors from a variety of different places, usually suggested by you. Sometimes there are pastors I want to look at, but we look at their sermons. Now, we look at three specific things in their sermon each week. The first is, do they read the scripture? The second is, do they exegete the scripture using context and culture to bring out application? And the third is, do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, if you're interested in sort of looking for that and all the sermons that you look at, which I would highly recommend you do, you can check out this right here. It's downloadable below in the description. It's a PDF guide of our sermon review guide. Now, in all the sermon review guides, obviously, you have... Uh, the church that you're going to, the date, the main speaker, the main scripture, other scriptures that they may use, notes that you're taking, as well as, again, we're looking at, is the, is the sermon expositional? Is it textual? Is it topical? Did they reprove, rebuke, and exhort the audience, as it says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 2? And then this last block is obviously the things we look for in every single sermon. And then over to the right here, in this big open area, you have some visual notes as well. If you're a visual learner or you just need extra area, I always use them for extra notes because I, um, well, because this area here, uh, this small area with just the lines in our notes is never enough space for me. So I always use the extra area. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do another rewind. Now, in case you don't know what a rewind is, I get it. It's new. It's a new thing we're doing. We're looking at another sermon from a pastor that you guys were like, hey, I don't think your first review was very fair of them. You need to take another look. Now, before we get into this sermon, let me just say a couple things. One, when we do these sermon reviews, it is not about the pastor specifically that we're looking at. Obviously, people make that connection because we are using them as an example. But by and large, we're just saying, hey, when we listen to a sermon, are these things mentioned? Now, sometimes, obviously, some people connect the review to that particular pastor and they feel some type of way about it. I totally get it. There's no way to avoid it. That's not the intent, but that does happen. Well, a couple weeks ago, we posted a, uh, a review of a guy named Jonathan or J.P. Pokluduga. I never can say his last name right. The point is this. It is the only sermon review that I've ever taken down. And the only reason we did that is because after I reached out to a few people and said, hey, was I fair here? I felt like I was fair. Uh, I trust them a lot. They said, I don't know, maybe you weren't. So we took it down. Now, that's never happened before in the history of any sermon review, but I trust the discernment of these people, so I went ahead and took it down. But we are going to look at another one of his reviews, because there was some critique that the review I did the first time was at a conference. Now, I have made it pretty clear that I don't think conferences are any different than churches in regards to how you should present the sermon. Some people feel that way. I clearly don't, but I want to look at a sermon he preached at his home church, and we're going to look at that today. Now, if you want to watch this full sermon without my commentary, as always, link will be in the description below, as well as a way to support what we do. We've got these cool new exegesis over eisegesis hats if you want to check that out, uh, or a variety of different other things you can check out down below. Um, but let's go ahead and hop into it. Let's start in. It's a uh, sermon called The God Who Fights for You from Psalm 46. So let's go ahead and get this thing rolling. The sermon itself is 50 minutes long. So just so you know, this is going to be a lengthier review probably. Uh, so you can buckle yourself and prepare for that. Here we go. Church, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, Monica and I are at that age where 
people are having those landmark birthdays on both sides of us. And so it seems like every weekend there's like a 40th birthday or a 50th birthday and people go big on their, you know, those some, sometimes on those landmark birthdays. And so a couple of weeks ago, my friend turned 40 and uh, he wanted to go to a nice dinner. And so it's a restaurant I've never heard of, never been to, which is always a little bit unsettling because you're like, what do I wear? And I'm trying to figure, you don't want to be, we were a group of 25, so we didn't want to pull up and they're like, hey, we can't let you in, you know, the tall guys in flip-flops. So, uh, so I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do my reconnaissance by the, not why I'm wearing a blazer. I know some of you are like, oh, I see where this is going. No, no, that, that, not just coincidence. And so we're going to this restaurant and we get there and it, it's nice. Like it's like one of the nicest restaurants I've ever been in. Like, like almost like uncomfortable, nice. So really quick, as he's sort of entering into here, what we like to cover, what I try to address is that when you listen to different pastors from different places, they're all obviously going to sort of have a sermon build that's a bit different Um though probably will fit into one of three categories, right? So the first category is going to be what he's doing here, introing with a sermon uh, or with a story rather in a sermon that will likely then connect to his point. Full disclosure, I forgot to mention this. I always forget to mention this. I have watched this sermon all the way through once. So just so you know, I kind of know what's coming. But this is one way that pastors open their sermons, right? With a story that hopefully then connects to what they're going to talk about. Sometimes it doesn't, but that's the hope, right? Another way to open your sermon is just going right into the text, just right into it. Uh, a third way, which I'm not a fan of at all, is like, hey, I like... Joel Olstein does this <laughs> a lot, where uh, not that he's like the pinnacle of who you should be listening to preach wise, but he usually opens with a like a joke. He's just like, I like to open with a joke. One day there was a chicken that crossed the road, and then it'll say some random thing, and then he'll get into whatever he's talking about. But that's like those are the three ways: break the ice, essentially do a joke, and then go into your sermon, just jump right into the text, which I'm I prefer. Uh, or do what JP's doing here, which is like, hey, here's a little story. It, the, the advantage of what he's doing here is that it sort of connects you in right away, right? Oh, this is an interesting story. I want to know kind of what's going on. I want to be connected right away. And if you take the flow right from the story into the text, ideally you've created that bridge there where you've already hooked people, they're already interested, and now you've brought them into the text. That's kind of the goal of this process. Like mahogany, you know, everywhere, beautiful scene, crystal, you know, white tablecloths, all the thing. And it's a vibe. Like there's a, there's these, there's like a stage and they're playing kind of like this jazz music and the dudes are in tuxedos, you know, singing with the, the old school microphone. And there's a, a, a female vocalist in like a sequins gown. And it's that vibe. And the only thing you hear in there is kind of the, the music and the, the low hum of conversation. It's just like a really swank place. Well, all of a sudden, everything changes. I mean, in one moment, it was just like it became a different place. They, they pull the people off the stage. DJ goes up there. They start playing this big song. And, and these, this gang of huge men walk in with T-shirts and ball caps. And they're carrying this like large silver thing. And I'm like, what is going on? Well, it turns out it was the Stanley Cup. Okay, and they were the the Golden Knights who the day before or two days before had won the Stanley Cup. Here's a quick uh, video. Stanley Cup. Let's go. 
So that was quite the vibe change, okay? And, and that song, that's Queen's, We Are the Champions, uh, from 1977. And it has become an anthem for any time there's a national championship, a, a Super Bowl, a World Series winner, a high school basketball tournament, whatever it is, right? We love to play that. We are the champions. And, and it's a familiar song to us. We hear it and we play it in the wake of victory. And the reason I start there, because the psalm that we're going to look at today is a song that the church would sing in the wake of victory. In fact, it was written for a very specific victory. So as we dive into the psalm, I'm going to have to give you the, the historical context as to why it was written. And we're So he's already won me with the historical context, right? So the, basically the connection he's making is, hey, here's the thing we were at. This is a song we heard. We connect this song to victory. Hey, also, Israel had similar songs of victory. We're going to talk about one of those, but you need to understand the context of that song of victory so you fully understand sort of the context of the song we're looking at. And so this is helpful, right? This is what we kind of want from, um, want to do as pastors especially, is that when we're presenting the word, we're giving some sort of, again, context to where that came from. Now, you're not always, here's the thing, especially with the Psalms, you're not always going to have the ability to maybe give context to those. Sometimes you just don't simply have in some, in some very unique aspects, any sort of ability to give context to what's going on. In those cases, you can default to uh, what little you do know, or at least the, the the book of which that psalm is included in, because there's there's separate books within the psalms that the psalms are in that sort of, you know, they give tone and tenor of what those psalms are for. Um, but you, you need to, as much as you can, give some context to what's going on. Now, luckily for JP, Psalm 46 has a lot of context that you can get draw from. He's going to get into a lot of that. I do want to talk about some particulars of it because I think it's a really interesting psalm. But the point is, as pastors, we need to do that. As congregants, as people that are listening to the sermons, we need to want that, right? To fully understand what you're reading in scripture, there's always some sort of context that is going to make that richer and deeper and more understandable. And we, we should want that sort of thing so that we can sort of, uh, so that we can kind of work through that and see, you know, where the connections are. Because there is application, and we'll see that again. JP will, um, not to spoil it, but he'll bring some application forward for us. There is always application in the scriptures for believers. We just have to be careful how quickly or what we draw that application to, to make sure it's accurate. And giving context to the text you're reading will help us more accurately apply the application, if that makes sense. So let's hop back in. We're going to kind of jump back and forth. There's more information today that I could, could dump on you than there's time for. So try to follow along. Great opportunity uh, to take notes. If you have your Bible and a pen, you can write in the margin. But as Christians, okay, so we're here. We're in church Sunday morning. We believe there's a God. Mo most of you, the vast majority of you, you're here because you're either seeking God or you say, oh, I know him through his son, Jesus Christ. He died for my sins, raised from the dead. I have victory in Christ. I have victory. I'm walking in victory in Christ. And I'm not so sure we're convinced. Because then we go and we worry. We're given to fear. We're overwhelmed by anxiety. The frustrations of this world set us off. They say, like, I'm walking in the victory of Christ until 
Right? And in fact, this is my own story. Like I grew up in church, going to church multiple times a week, and I just assumed, hey, this is a bunch of people playing games. We all come together, we sing songs, we pretend like there's a God. Because I, you know, it wasn't my parents, I had amazing parents. My, my mom was up every single morning by the lamp in the word. Okay, but I saw a lot of contradiction, a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of people going to church on Sunday singing, yes, we've overcome by the blood of the lamb, yes, Jesus, yes, victory in Christ, and going and being overwhelmed by the concerns and the fears and the worries of this world. And So within the sermon build, what we want to get to is this, and I think it's really important is that what JP has done is he said, hey, here's a song that we connect to victory. This is a similar psalm within the scripture. We say that we have victory in Jesus, but we live in ways that don't necessarily demonstrate that. And he says, I saw a lot of that growing up. Maybe you've seen a lot of that growing up. So what basically what he's doing is he's, he's trying to stir up within the people that he's talking to, like those moments where maybe they themselves have found themselves not necessarily trusting in the Lord fully, or they've seen other people not doing so. And with the idea of saying, well, we're going to address that, but you need to acknowledge or understand that it is there. So what we say and what we do sometimes are different. So how do we align that with what we're going to read today? And so he's now set himself up basically a goal saying that, hey, you know, this Psalm 46 is a psalm of victory. We claim victory. We don't necessarily live like that all the time. So now his goal is to demonstrate to us as those that are listening, how those two things can come in line with one another, how you can say you live in victory and then also live that way, not only just with your mouth, but with your actions. So that's basically the goal he set up. He said, hey, this is a psalm of victory. When you hear it, you should think of victory, but you don't just think of it. You live that way as well. So now he sort of set up the goal of how is he going to kind of walk us through that? And I thought, oh, everybody's just playing a game. It's a sham. That's what church is. We just go and we pretend. We talk about for an hour about how we have victory. And then we go and we get overwhelmed by the world. That's what Christians do. I'm out on that. I'm not going to play that game. And the last thing that I want to do here is play that game. There's either a God or, the, or there's not. He's either in control or he's not. He either is crazy about you or he's not. And we gotta decide because if there is a God and he is in control and he's crazy about you, then what are we worried about? Like we're here for a moment. We're going to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. We are the champions. Seems like we win. But I think we got to ask sometimes, like, do we really know what we say we know? Like, are we so sure? So we're in the series soundtracks where we're going through the Psalms. And we started in Psalm 1. From Psalm 1, we went to Psalm 19, and then last week we were in Psalm 42. Well, today we're going to be in Psalm 46. If you want to turn there, Psalm 46. All right, so anytime, as I've said before, in case you're new here, if a pastor mentions a passage that is their main passage, you definitely go there. Uh, the reason we have um, the other scriptures on the Sermon Review Guide is in case he mentions some others, which he will, uh, but I just bring that up because sometimes pastors do mention other scripture, uh, whether it be topical or whether it be, you know, cross-references, that's what those are there for. So that when you look back on these notes, you, you know what they were talking about. This is where we will be. 
And, you know, I call this message, the victory that comes from God's powerful protection of his people. That we have a God, that God is powerful, and he's protecting us. And, and so, because he has overcome evil, we believe that, we walk in his victory, but what does that actually mean? We, we say that Jesus has won, the grave is empty, we have an inheritance of glorious riches, we're going to be with God forever and ever and ever, and yet we walk out out those doors and we're overwhelmed by the worries and the fears of this world. A diagnosis, a prodigal child, uh, a, a job that has evaporated, a relationship that has gone away or in trouble, uh, a, a grade, a challenge, a circumstance, the death, a grief that we experience, all can feel like, wait, God, are you sure you're, you're powerful? You're protecting me. You're in control. Are you sure you love me? And we got to, if we come here and we gather, again, last thing I want to do is play games. We got to make sense of all of that. And so we battled those things that I just mentioned, those hardships with God's protection with God's power and ultimately with God's peace. And so as we flow through this psalm, Psalm 46, that's what we're going to look at. God's protection, God's power, and God's peace, which is ultimately leads to our peace. Because you facing the troubles of this life are your ultimate opportunities to show the faith that you say that you have. Okay, when you come face to face with challenges, circumstances, curveballs, and left turns, that's the opportunity to say, oh, now I get to display my faith that I've been building up every morning in my quiet time, every Sunday when I gather with the saints. It's not just this thing that I say that I believe. Now is my opportunity to actually exercise the faith that I say that I have, and I can show the world that. Psalm 46 is, it's a landmark psalm. It was read on the 10th uh, anniversary of 9-11 by the President of the United States of America. Um, if you've ever sung, you grew up in church and you sang hymns, Mighty Fortresses Are God by Martin Luther, that was from this psalm. Uh, if you've listened to the Worship Initiative and you have an affinity for Psalm 46 by Shane and Shane, that's this psalm. Like, this is the one. And so uh, as we dive into it, I'm going to set it up. Here's what's happening on the peripheral. This psalm. Okay, so a couple things. One, what he did here I think was helpful. Um, one, he kind of brings the background as far as Martin Luther used this as a song. This is a very popular song, Shane and Shane. You've probably heard it. If you haven't, you can look it up and Google it. Um, it's really good. And so basically, then, hey, this is not only a huge psalm for the Israelites, which he's about to go into the history of it, but also for us. Like this is a psalm that carries weight, that says a lot, that is supposed to give hope in time of need. And so now what he's going to do is unpack for us the, um, the context of it. And so again, this is, this is what we always talk about. Like this is why context is so important is because understanding what the background of this psalm is, and hopefully you'll see this as he sort of unpacks it, helps us better understand what the psalm says and why it says what it says. It, it, it gives it, um, I can't even word, like it just it's, makes it meatier, right? Because when you read it, understanding what it was written from, you go, wow, 
okay, like God is good. He provides like there's nothing he cannot do sort of thing. So um, listen to this. Um, I'll try not to break into the context part because I think he covers it really well. But um, th- this again is what we're looking for. I-, I can't stress that enough. Like as pastors, um, giving the people context is important. Now, again, you have to do so in a way that's condensed because as JP already said earlier on, there's too much here for me to dump all on you. So then you have to make the conscious decision. What do I cut and what do I keep that still keeps the the, the truth of what's being said without giving you just so much information you don't know how to process it? And that's it. That is something you develop over time. But that is something you have to work on because, yeah, there's a lot of information. So now you as the pastor have to say, here's all the information. What do I keep? What do I throw out that I present to you so you understand the depth of what we're looking at? It's the we are the champions to a battle that was fought, but not necessarily by the soldiers. What happened is you have King Hezekiah. He is the king, the ruler of Judah, God's people, okay? Jerusalem now. Uh, King Hezekiah, if you know anything about the Old Testament kings, lots of bad ones, a few good ones. He's one of the few good ones. King Hezekiah was faithful. Faithfulness marked him. And, and Isaiah is his prophet. And so Isaiah is communicating to King Hezekiah the will of God and the words of God. Well, there's another king, a ruler, Sennacherib. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. Assyria is a, an area that includes Nineveh. We just studied Jonah. We learned about the Ninevites, that they're bad, they're wicked people, that they skin people. That's a part of the Assyrian empire. Sennacherib is from Nineveh and he's He's a bad dude. And so what he's doing is he's just taking over places. He's like, my land, my kingdom, my people, my money. And he's like a mob boss because he's like, hey, if you don't want me to take you over, then you got to pay me. Put me on your payroll. Hezekiah did. Hezekiah's like, okay, I'm going to pay you not to take us over. But at some point, Sennacherib is like, you know what? I don't care. I'm coming for you. We're at the gates. I got 185,000 soldiers ready to take you over. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and he's like, hey man, he's here. He's out there and he's gonna take us over. And Hezekiah being a man who's faithful says, well, I must turn to God in prayer. Let me lay my strategy and plans before the Lord and seek the Lord and see what he wants for me. And there was a supernatural victory delivered to him. And in the wake of that victory, they sang, we are, no, they sang Psalm 46. Yeah, so we'll dive in with that in the background. Verse one. Uh, This is also written by the sons of Korah, Del. Last week told us who they are. They wrote Psalm 42. Uh, these were the, old, the OG worship leaders. Okay, these were the guys that would write these songs that were sung by the church at the time. And so uh, you go back and listen if you missed that. Um, we'll go, verse one. Uh, the only thing that I would mention here is that I don't think he brings it up um, at all. He does talk about Hezekiah and Sennacherib and this battle that's happening based on it. I don't think he mentions at any point in this sermon, as far as I remember, that this is based on Second Kings chapter 18 uh, going into chapter 19. Um, that would be helpful. Again, I very much, I don't like, I don't want to belittle the fact that I very much appreciate JP bringing up 
this this what happens here in second kings and that this is based off of that like this psalm comes from that um however um he doesn't bring up where it's at so like if we're sitting in the audience taking notes as you should um there's you as long as you write down you know hezekiah snackrib like you're going to be able to google it really quick and find it but um it would be helpful to be like hey in this little section here in second kings chapter 18 going into verse 19 or into chapter 19 rather like this is where we're talking about like this is the backstory of what's going on here right um that that's the only thing i would add is that we didn't bring it up and as somebody that preaches regularly and forgets to mention things regularly JP may have had it in his notes and just forgot to mention it or thought he mentioned it as he got into it, but he hasn't, or maybe he did mention it and I didn't hear it. <laughs> like any of these three things could have occurred. Um, but the point is we, again, with context, we want to give people biblical references so that it's anchored in text that they can go back to that. That's all I'm saying here. So now he's getting into uh, 46, uh, Psalm 46. God is our refuge. You can underline refuge and strength an ever-present, you can underline ever-present, help in trouble, which means he's, he's available anytime you need it, but whether you need him or not, he's always available. He's always there. He's ever-present. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and, and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. So the, the song starts out, here's who God is, Okay, he's a refuge, he's strength, he's ever-present. Therefore, verse two, as a result of who God is, we don't fear. The reason we don't fear is because God is ever-present and protecting us. And he's there when we need him. And because he's there when we need him, as a result of that reality, that thinking, that knowledge, we don't fear. Even when everything around us crumbles, the earth give way and the mountains quake. We don't fear because of who God is. My first point, the protection of God is ever present. The protection of God is ever present. Here's what I think about when I read that. If you've ever been to the swimming pool and there's a mother there with her young children and you're trying to have a conversation with her, it's almost impossible because she's looking through you. you ever, have you ever done this? Like her kids are playing in the pool, like maybe they can swim, maybe they can't. And you're like, hey, so what did y'all do this, this weekend? And she's like, um, uh, this weekend we... Uh, we did some things and and yeah hey Tommy stop no running and and uh so yeah oh yeah we went to the game of fourth of July fireworks Su Susie okay yeah okay and 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 she's just like watching the kids right like there's not a moment of your life at any point of your existence that God does not see he's not intimately involved in there's 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 no time that the creator of the heavens and the earth is not aware of. And maybe a better illustration for you is a lifeguard. Like the lifeguard is there to make sure that that area is safe, that, that people are, are thriving there. And so what or who you turn to in times of trouble tells me everything that you actually believe about God. And it's often counterintuitive to stop and, and to say, okay, Lord, before I do anything else, I'm just going to pray. Sometimes you guys will ask other people to pray when you haven't prayed. Hey, will you just, will you just pray 
for me? Hey, will you pray about this? Hey guys, I'm gonna send in a prayer request. Let me ask you a question before we pray, before we rally the troops. How many hours have you spent in prayer over this? How long have you fasted? What is your prayer life? Because sometimes we're like, hey, pray for me when we, like, when we haven't prayed for us. Right? Who you turn to in times of trouble says a whole lot of what you believe about God. Right? Has your world ever fallen apart around you? Like, all, like one minute you're standing on solid ground, like God is good, and I went to church, and hallelujah, praise God from whom all. And, and then the next minute with a phone call, an email, a text message, a letter, you open a letter, you look for someone who's not there, all of a sudden everything in your world turns. The relationship shifted, the job shifted, the financial situation shifted, the bill came, the, the, the job went away, uh, the, the doctor said, what, I've got what? The kid is like, you're watching someone make destructive decisions and you can't control them. And you know those decisions aren't going anywhere good and it's like your world is crumbling. And who you turn to in that moment, that's what you believe. <laughs> that's what you really believe. We can say we believe lots of things. But in that moment, that, that defines what you actually believe. And I don't want you to, and so this is a, a public service announcement. I don't want you to fall into the trap of blaming God. I see it all the time. I got here and I don't want to be here and it's your fault. It's your, it's, how could you? No, 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 no. He's not the problem. He's the solution. It's not the time to bow up to the creator of the heavens and the earth and let him know that his plans were not your plans and now, now you're so angry. It's time to say, help me. I think one thing, and again, I don't, when I say this, I'm not saying that Jonathan is saying the opposite. I'm saying that mature believers, those that have walked with the Lord for a while, that have had good community around them, that, um, that have been through a few things, you're going to be able to say, yeah, I agree with this, right? Because you're going to be able to say like, wow, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like I have the faith because, you know, I've seen him, you know, persevere through terrible times. But the reason you have the faith is because that faith was built over time through terrible times. And so I, I would just be careful in like, depending on how, if you, if you have a lot of people in your congregation that you know are younger in the faith to be like, Hey, don't be mad at God. Don't question God in these moments. Um, because yeah, you, you should have a trust and faith in the Lord. However, that is built and so sometimes whenever they say, hey, I need you to pray for me because I don't have the words. And again, I'm not saying Jonathan or JP here isn't saying like this. I'm just saying that they can come off this way. And so as pastors, we just, again, you're thinking about what the congregation is thinking as you're saying that. And so you're, you're trying to read their minds as you're writing your sermon so that when you give your sermon, you're already addressing the objections or reactions that they have. Like this, again, this is a process. This is why you should think through what you're preaching. Um, because what, if there's a younger person in the congregation, younger in faith, not necessarily in age, but younger in faith in the congregation that hears this, they're like, wow, I, like I'm going through something tough and I do question like, where is God in this? I don't know if I have the faith to get through this. The reality is that lots of times, many of us, that faith is developed over time. 
sometimes through other people that love Jesus coming around us and really, I, I know this isn't like, I, I understand this isn't a theological term here, but lending their faith, right? They're, they are praying when we don't have the words to pray. They have the strength when we don't have the strength. And so like, I would have liked to seen something like that interjected here. Uh, because even in the text, they, the psalmist says this afterwards. <laughs> um, it's like, hey, we, we know who God is, and therefore we don't fear. Well, sometimes you don't know who God is yet, especially if you're a new believer. You're like, you know, Jesus died for you. You know that he rose from the grave. Like you're, you're following him. You've seen life change, but you've not hit a huge bump or a couple huge things yet that really test that faith. And so to assume that as soon as you hit that, you're like, oh, no, yeah, I'm good. That's just not, that's not the case. And I know, again, I know JP knows this, but I'm saying from an audience perspective, from someone that's listening, um, to sort of work through that and explain that a little bit. And again, that comes with anticipating what they're hearing and then addressing the anticipation of what, you know, they're thinking. Um, because what may happen is somebody hears this and go, well, maybe I'm not a believer then because I do, I am mad. I am mad at God right now. Like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't see him. I don't know what's happening. I don't have the faith to pray. And so just thinking through that, again, as we're addressing scripture, I'm not, again, no shade on JP. I'm just saying that, like, I, we have to anticipate as pastors what the congregation is going to hear and think and process through what we're saying. And that's hard. Again, that's hard because you have to, you have to figure out what you're going to include, what you're not going to include to put it down to a 50-minute sermon. You can make sense of this. It's not what I wanted. This isn't where I thought I'd be. Can you please help me? I, I need, like, you're the only one that, that can bring resolution to this problem. He's your refuge. Your refuge is shelter from danger, but not just your refuge, he's also your strength. His protection is always there. My favorite trip to date, if you said, hey, what's your favorite place you've ever been? Now, one thing we're going to do. Now, he included the, the irony here is that this story was actually also in the last sermon review I did. He told this. The last sermon review I did of him was uh, when he spoke at Passion. And he includes this story, though he includes a few more details in this story than when he did last time. But what we're always looking for, regardless, in a story that a pastor tells is this. Does this story add or take away from the scripture, right? Uh, are we a great sort of a litmus test that I say is like, are there too many details here? Are we bogged down in the details of the story that we forget or they don't connect at all with the scripture we're looking at? Or do we have just enough in this story to give us some sort of connection to what's also happening in the scripture so that we can make that correlation? And that's a hard thing to do. Again, that's again, as a pastor, guys, you're, you're, you're thinking ahead. You're thinking what they're thinking. You're trying to say, hey, what is distracting? What's not? There's a lot to do in this. This is why it's an important, this is why it's an important position that is for qualified people. And so that's what we're looking for, right? Is in stories, what are we doing? So anyway, I say that because I'm not, I'm not going to interrupt his story, but it's longer. So I just, I'm giving you the, hey, you're going to hear him talk for a bit because I want to let him tell this whole story. So let's, let's let him tell the story been I would tell you Africa and so um, we went there on a mission trip but on the tail end 
of the mission trip through the generosity of one of the attorneys that went, I got to go on this photo safari. And I just didn't know what I was getting into. Like, it, it was just epic. Like, I, like, so epic, no exaggeration is necessary. It was just absolutely amazing. And we land in the jungles of Africa and we're driving to this place. And he had told me, hey, we're gonna stay in a tent, right? And, and we're, as we're driving there, there's animals everywhere. No fence, but animals everywhere, you know? And they're all vicious looking. Like the little animals there look like they could eat you, you know, at will. And so like there's like a herd of hyenas, you know, and they just, they, they look hungry. And then you see a warthog, like a pig. And you think, oh, nice, cute little piggy. It's got like tusks seven inches long protruding from its face. Like I'll tear you to shreds if you look at me funny. You know, I was like, you're just like, okay, all right. The cats there? They're all, they did creatine or something. They're all huge. I mean, enormous. I mean, like we see a cheetah. You think, oh, cute cheetah, you're fast. That thing will eat you. A leopard, we saw a leopard. I'm like, that is beautiful and terrifying. And, and then we see on the way to the tent, the king of the jungle. And it's just like this it, it, massive lion. And with every step, you just see the muscles. I think we got a picture maybe. But it, with every step, yeah, there it is. It's just like you see that thing. And, and right about then, like I see that thing. And I think, we're staying in tents? <laughs> so I turn to my buddy. I'm like, hey, you said we're sleeping in tents? And this is what he says to me. He goes, hey, don't worry. The lions don't know that they can tear through the tents. I'm like, who tested that theory? <laughs> Like they didn't live to tell you the outcome, right? Okay. And so I, I, I'm getting a little bit of anxiety around this, like sleeping in the tent with all these animals around us. So when night falls, you can imagine how relieved I am when I walk up and there's a guard outside my tent, armed, an armed guard with a rifle, you know? And I'm like, what's up, buddy? <laughs> hey, man, you sight for sore eyes. Hey, so you, you just, you're just assigned to my tent? Yeah, oh, yes, yes, sir. I'm like, that is amazing news. So you're gonna be out here all night? Yes, sir. Yeah, man, talk to me about that gun. You know how to work that? Uh, you, you practice? He's like telling me, just, he's, you know, he's like, oh yeah, I'm target practice. Like, I'm very good with the gun. I'm like, awesome. You are, like, dap you up, fist bump. Like, you're my guy. I go inside I just to sleep, right? I go inside, but I gotta stay up till midnight to call Monica because of the time change. So I'm trying to stay up to midnight I get on the phone with Monica and, and I'm like, I'm talking to her and I hear this. And I'm like, hey, babe, I gotta go. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, why? And I said, there's a lion outside my tent, which is really cruel because those are the last words I said to her, you know, that I like hung up. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about it. I'm sorry. I didn't think about that till way later. But, um, <laughs> but then all night long, I'm thinking, man, I hope, I hope he's not sleeping. Like, I hope he's watching. I hope he's alert. You know, like, I, I hope he's ready for, for whatever's going to come. Because who's protecting you? And, and their awareness, their presence, who you believe is watching over you makes all the difference. Really defines your faith. And not just your faith, but your outcome of those situations, Right? Uh, are, are, do they have what it takes? Our peace comes from who we believe is protecting us. And everyone here, we, we all have views of God that are just a little bit off. Like somewhere our theology is not perfect. 
And it, it really is going to be defined by what we think is happening. Like sometimes I hear people say, well, God is doing this to me. He must be mad at me or, or God has left me and God's not aware or, or, you know, and all of these ideas. But what the scripture says is God is your ever present protection is what it says here. And so we've got to reconcile that with, with what our experience is. The first thing that King Hezekiah does when he hears Sennacherib is out. Okay, so really quick. Uh, he does go into this story a little bit further here in a minute. Um, kind of a continuation. This is a pause between. But so there's a good example, right? So telling a story, giving some details, then connecting it to his point, right? So the whole idea is that, G that God is our refuge, our ever-present strength. He tells a story about going to Africa, sort of, you know, talks about the people he interacts with, what, you know, how he felt insecure, the guard making him secure, and then connecting that guard to God and his security in the tent based on the guard outside and our security in life connected to our view on God, right? So not altogether bad. Again, the, the thing that I'm trying to do in these reviews to do better is say, hey, what are the three things they're doing versus what are my sort of my pet peeves in regards to sort of how sermons are built. Most of you probably have no issue with you know him going into some sort of like again, it was funny, it connected. I would say I would cut that part out just because I, I want again to just make it boom, boom, boom. That's my personality. That's my methodology. JP has a different methodology uh, in regards to that. But the idea of just saying, hey, there was a guard outside my tent and my safety away from the lions was based on that guard. Again, it's just, that's all methodology. You take it or leave it, but it is something as a pastor, you have to think through in how you prepare your sermons, right? So JP uses this story to illustrate how we sometimes base our protection or our, or how we feel protected on other people and how we do that with God as well. And in those situations, and again, I think that's his point in the demonstrating of that in our situations, um, in the hardness of life, the reality of our feelings about who God is and how he protects us will come out. And then he makes that direct correlation with what it says in scripture. So he says, well, in those hard times, how you really feel about God protecting you will be shown. Do you actually think he's your refuge and ever present strength? Or do you have some doubts on that? And that's what he's really digging into now. Again, connecting at the beginning with this, we say we have victory, but we live in different ways. So he's really, again, drawing back to what he was saying before and fulfilling what I said he was needing to do, which is he's setting up an issue and now he's dealing with that issue in the sermon. Outside is he lays his plans before the Lord. And I'm just amazed at how often that's not our first move. Uh, our first move is, hey, let me strategize, let me call, hey, let me check bank accounts, let me do this, right? Verse four, let's go back in. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. That God is within her, she will not fall. A lot of you ladies have that on your Instagram account. That's talking about Jerusalem, just so we're clear, okay? It's really, before you get the tattoo, make sure you understand the context, okay? Uh, 
and where it says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, this is really fascinating because what happened is Hezekiah dug these tunnels that became wells that stored up lots of water. Okay, so when Sennacherib came to attack him, he could cut off the water source for Sennacherib, but inside the city, they had plenty of water to drink. Now, this is all well documented, both in history, historical accounts, as well as 2 Chronicles 32 and 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Okay, so I did see he does mention it. I just completely forgot that he mentioned it. So that's helpful, right? So he mentions it really quick. And this is where, again, so he mentions it really fast. This is where when you're taking notes, you have to be listening. And it's for your benefit, right? It's for your benefit and uh, so that you can go back later and look that stuff up. And as pastors, again, this is why sermon building is so important and where you put things is important. And again, you might be like, well, you're just really overthinking it. No, as a pastor, I think if you preached for a while, you know this. The way you build your sermons are important. And if you're a new pastor trying to figure out how to do this, this is important for you to know. Sitting down and building a sermon out well so that it can be heard easily is important. If, so that your points come across clearly, so that it flows well, so people don't get lost. There are some pastors that get up and it's just like a shotgun with their points. Just pump it, shoot it, and just they've got five points and they're all over the place and no one can follow it. I, I encourage people to take notes a lot of times and what will happen is people come back and be like, man, I don't, am I, do I just not take notes well? Because like, this was a point, this was a point. No, sometimes you're taking good notes and the pastor you're listening to has just really not built the sermon out well. And so as pastors, one of the things we have to do is sit down and like, all right, does this flow? Is this understandable? If someone's taking notes on this, is it, can, is it, is it coherent <laughs> or not? And so this is, again, props to JP for going through and being like, that he did mention this. I, again, I, I would have recommended this being mentioned before, so we had some sort of context. But he does mention it as he's working us through the context of what's happening. So what JP is doing here, at least in this sermon, again, it's hard to judge somebody on one sermon. This is why we're doing the rewinds. But he's weaving together Psalm 46, together with 2 Kings, together with, you know, the context and the history that it's in. So that hopefully this all comes together and you understand that your faith and your trust in the Lord isn't something you just struggle with. It is something that has been a thing for all time. And that Psalm 46 points us to, based upon a text that he's unpacking, how and why we can trust in the Lord as one example of many. Uh, so let's let him get back to it again. He's, he's just told us where you can find it, but he's unpacking the background of what Hezekiah has done up to this point having faith and obeying the Lord and really having forethought so that when this attack did happen, which Hezekiah knew was going to happen, he would be prepared. Specifically in 2 Chronicles, you see this detailed account of how they had rivers that made the heart glad because of Hezekiah's planning. And in fact, 3,000 years later, you can go to Jerusalem and you can take the tour of, guess what? Hezekiah's tunnels, okay? So here's a picture of it. It's still there to this day. And there's just like, like I, I don't wanna say miles because I'm not 100% sure, but like lots and lots of pathways. I've been in them, okay? Here's a picture of me in those tunnels. And yeah, claustrophobic nightmare, right? But there we are moving through Hezekiah's tunnels. 3,000 years later, time stamp, right? It's, it's this, this history, this psalm we're reading, these rivers, I've been there. You can go there. You can see them in, in God's word. 
good. That, that is just true. Verse six, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty, underline Almighty. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress now, he says. Underline fortress. And so he's saying God is powerful, that his voice melts the earth, the very earth that he spoke into existence. It's not enough that he's ever present, uh, that ever present protection and danger. He has to have the power to protect us. Like, if I say I have a bodyguard, but my bodyguard is weak and scared, he's not going to be much of a bodyguard. But we have one protecting us who's not just ever present, but he's powerful. The next night, go back with me to Africa for a minute. So I make it through the night, call Monica, hey, still alive. We go have an amazing day, look into animals. Night falls again, go back to the tent, right? It's a different guy. Different guy watching. He has, I'm not even kidding, a homemade bow and arrow. I'm like, where's your friend? He goes, he was assigned to a different tent. I go, you guys should switch. <laughs> no, yeah, we became buddies yesterday. I got to know him. <laughs> like, truly, like, let's get him back. Wait, but you own a gun? <laughs> you know? And, and he's like, no, but I'm very good with the bow and arrow. I'm like, uh, okay, sure you are. No. And so, right, who's watching over you? Do they have the power to protect you? And what the word is making clear to you is absolutely. God is almighty, it says. So my second point is the power of God prevails. The power of God prevails. What I mean by prevails is stronger than any situation or circumstance that would come against him. The power of God prevails. It says that he's almighty. That word means having complete power, and it is a name for God. We call him almighty God. Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And it says here that he's not just a refuge, that's what we read in that first stanza, but he's actually a fortress. What is a fortress? A fortress is different than a refuge. A refuge is protection. A fortress is a place that contains warriors. Hey, we are a, a place uh, of an army. So let's go back to that word almighty because in the Hebrew, that's Jehovah Sabaoth. That Jehovah Sabaoth, that means Lord of hosts. ESV probably says Lord of hosts. Uh, NLT says God of heavenly armies. Okay, so what's happening here, and again, what I want to draw out, JP is connecting all of the text together and making very important distinctions in what the psalmist is writing in regards to refuge versus stronghold or fortress. Also within the different translation. We've talked about this before. As a pastor, if you know your congregation reads different translations, you want to make that at least uh, a, a thought in your head as you prepare. Now, maybe not every time. You're not going to draw out the differences every time, but you are in important places like JP is here. So, again, at, at, if you've ever been in a congregation and you've had a translation that the pastor does not have, and he does not necessarily address this, you're trying to, I mean, you know the, the, the trying to figure this out as you go along, right? I mean, there's times where I have my ESV, and somebody's preaching out of the King James, and I'm just like, "Where are we? <laughs> like this? Where are we? These are these like these words are swapped around, um, and you're just trying. To, you're having a difficulty following along. And so it's important as a pastor to recognize that, knowing that your congregation probably has four different translations within the congregation, and as you prepare, having those translations in front of you, so that if there are major differences, you can notate that, and if 
it is important enough, you can bring that up. And that's all JP's doing here. He's saying, hey, like, look at these word distinctions. Look what's happening because this is important and purposeful. And he's unpacking it for them, um, which, again, this is this is what we're wanting to do. And he's doing so to draw that out. And, and I've said this time and time again. As pastors, when you're preaching, you are inadvertently teaching your congregation how to read the scriptures. And so when you're bringing out particular words or making distinctions between refuge and fortress or stronghold, hopefully over time, your congregation picks up on that and they're able to do the same thing. Why? Because they've heard you do that and you've taught them to do that over time. And so again, this is why preparation for pastors is important. You've thought ahead of what you're going to say. You've anticipated what they're probably thinking and answered that anticipation before they've even thought it so that you're well-planned, you've built out your sermon, so that it's easy for them to listen to and understand and follow along with. So now as congregation, as the congregation listening to you, we don't have distractions. We're you know, laser-focused into what's happening, and it's easy to follow along because you're unpacking it as we go, right? You're making the path easy. Think of it as, uh, as someone going through, you know, maybe a, a really thick brush. You're cutting all of that down for us so we don't have to worry about it. We can just follow you through the path um, to the scripture. So That's what that word means. That he has an army behind him. A an army of what? Angels, let's talk about angels for a second. Angels all throughout scripture. Almost always when an angel shows up, it's followed by two words. And you really have two options of the two words. You, you see it repeated. Anybody know the two words that follows the angel came and then it says this, these two words? Fear not. That's the first option, fear not. You see those options. Angel shows up, fear not. Why? Because they're scary. They're terrifying. Do you know what the other two words are? Anybody know? What? Get up. Do you know why? Because people fall down in fear. They see an angel and they, their legs just collapse. These are scary dudes. God, creator, is the commander and chief of an army made up of the baddest soldiers you can possibly imagine. And in fact, anytime they show up on the scene, they have to say, hey, don't be afraid. Calm down, calm down, calm down. Or get up, get up, right? That's the soldiers in God's army because he is the Lord of hosts. When we say that, Lord of hosts, what do we mean? Commander in chief of an angelic army, but let me tell you about these angels. Here's what Sennacherib, to jump back to the story, here's what Sennacherib demanded of Hezekiah. He says, hey, you got to surrender. And then he says, he has the audacity of telling Hezekiah's people, he says in 2 Kings 18, do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. Hey, don't let him convince you to trust in the Lord. There are 185,000 soldiers with me. What's your God going to do? That night. Just one note here. I think that's the first time we've actually had, and again, I, I've been trying to take notes, follow along in the Bible too, so maybe I've missed it. I think that's the first time we've had scripture on the screen. This is the only thing I would recommend. Again, no shade on JP. This is just in general. If you have the ability uh, and technology to do certain things, 
utilize that as best as you can, right? So we have an enormous screen behind JP here of a road that I honestly would be very tempted to do like a road runner thing and pretend to run down and hit the wall. Like that's just what's in my head because that's how my brain works. But you could use that LCD wall to project up the the story in Second Kings 18 and then work through that. So because the reason I say this is that presumably people in the congregation have Psalm 46 open because that's where our main text is. That's what we've been working through. But you have technology to use it. So knowing that, basically, this is what I would say. Tell them, go to Psalm 46. Stay in Psalm 46 because that's where we're at. But as we work through this story that Psalm 46 comes from, uh, I'm going to have 2 Kings 18 on the screen here so that you can follow along with this story. Because JP's made it pretty obvious that like we're not going to go to 2 Kings, but this is the like this is the story I want you to follow along with. So utilize the technology you have in order to help people. Again, you're you're removing distractions for people. You're helping them engage and connect. And whatever we can do to eliminate you know, distractions, let's do that. So instead of them having flip back and forth, which is no problem, people have done that for ages, great. But we have technology that allows them to maybe not do that. So they have 46 open and Second Kings 18 is on the screen. So you can walk them through this story, right? I, again, methodology versus the things we're looking for. I'm just saying that if you have technology, think about how you can utilize that to the best of your ability. That night, an angel of the Lord shows up and kills 185,000 soldiers. Done. One angel. One soldier. Commander-in-chief of an army of angels. One angel shows up, fights an army of 185,000 men, and they all die. And you think, that's sweet. One of those beautiful, legendary Bible stories that may have happened. No, no, no. It's actually well-documented. I mean, we have carvings in Egypt that talk of this story. We have writings in other historical books that tell of the story the night when 185,000 soldiers mysteriously died. And then here in the word of God, we know why, we know how. That's the God that is protecting you. He has an army of those angels available to him at any moment. And it doesn't take many, right? Wow. So that's why it says, Verse eight, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. We are the champions. Isaiah tells Hezekiah, Sennacherib is going to be sent back to his hometown and you will be victorious. The God of angel armies is going to give you victory. 185,000 men wiped out in one evening and Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh where he's murdered by his own sons just as the prophet declared. Who you turn to in times of trouble tells me everything about what you believe about God. And I've seen it. I have seen people seemingly delusional in their faith. You have cancer. Oh man, God just gave me a mission field in the hospital. I'm gonna be sharing with all the nurses and the doctors. I don't know if you heard me. Oh, I heard you. 
just trust my God. It's not like he's surprised by this. And you don't get that in a moment. Hezekiah didn't determine, hey, do I want to trust God when Sennacherib is outside my city? Hezekiah, he's a faithful king. He's feasted on the word of God every day. He's worshiped in the temples every week. He, he, he removed all uh, of the semblances of false gods in the land. He says, there's only one God we're going to worship, and, and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this moment, he didn't decide, well, do I really trust him? He had been trusting him day in and day out, day in and day out. That's why I tell you all the time, your, your quiet time is not this homework that you need to do just so that you can check the box and tell your life group you did it. It's a survival method. It's a survival strategy against satanic attacks. Okay, so really quick, we need to, uh, bring, I, I want to bring up, up to this point where we've done the sermon build, because now he's bringing into uh, now at the 31 minute mark, we're bringing in some application, right? So we have about 20 minutes left in the sermon. I know we're about an hour into the sermon reviews, just so you kind of get a feel of kind of what we got left sermon build though, wise, Hey, we are the champion story bridges us into the text about sometimes we say we trust God, like we read Psalm 46 and we say we trust God, but our actions are different. So how do we reconcile those things? Gives us the background and context in Second Kings about Hezekiah and Acrib, about how Psalm 46 came about being, walks us through sort of, hey, do we, it says, you know, trust in the Lord, but do we? Well, if we don't, it's probably because we have a misconception of how powerful God is. So our trust in the Lord is directly connected to how much we actually think he can protect us. And now he's working sort of into this idea that, hey, you know, this isn't developed overnight. This is, or this isn't developed immediately. Like this is developed over time, bringing in the application of actually doing, you know, um, you know, reading your Bible, actually being in prayer. Because again, he's talking about the king doesn't just have the faith. It's he's developed it over time. He's had a plan. He's prepared for things. And therefore this is a, a long, this is sort of the, 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 uh, this is the end of a big, you know, purposeful planning and, and trust. And so now he's sort of built this out for us. So now, this is one point of application, I suppose, not the only, but that's the sermon build. Interweaving again, your faith and your understanding who God is and directly is directly connected to, you know, your response to that is directly connected to God, your view of God and connecting that to this psalm as well. So I just want you to see this as far as the build goes. It's easy to follow. It's interwoven with reading the psalm as well as 2 Kings. He's put in a few anecdotal stories here to sort of uh, give like real life examples of like, hey, I trusted the guy with a gun. I did not trust the guy with a bow. And we have the same concept with God. Do we actually trust God? Because if we don't, it's probably because we don't actually have a good understanding of who God is. And so I just want to show you up to this point that sermon build, and he's, he's addressed a couple times the question of how what we say versus how we live and making sure those two things to go together. And if they don't, why don't they? And that's what he's really bringing to the surface now for a second time. I think sometimes we have more in common with Sennacherib than Hezekiah. Sennacherib used what was available to him, the tangible the fleshly, things that give us the illusion of control. He's checking bank accounts. He's getting physicals. 
You know, he's calling relationships. Hey, we still friends. He's, he's saying, what do I have available to me to win? And Hezekiah's like, I got God. I got God. We were, um, every summer we go to family camp. I have the opportunity to teach at a family camp and in Missouri. And uh, a couple summers ago, we were driving home and there was some traffic on our normal route. So it rerouted us through Joplin, Missouri, which, which had recently been destroyed by a tornado. And so we were kind of reminded of that, talking about that. And then we drove down close to Moore, Oklahoma, another city that had recently been destroyed by a tornado. So we kind of had storms on the brain. Well, right about then, as we're driving through Oklahoma, all of our phones start blowing up, almost like an amber alert, you know? And we look and we're like, oh, it's a weather warning. And, and right when the phones start blowing up, the, it was like the skies opened up. And so much rain came down on the windshield that, that my wipers on high were like struggling to move through, through the, the water. It was zero visibility. We, we had to pull over. And, and I remember before we pulled over in my wife's suburban, the wind was moving us on the road. Like the gusts of wind were moving her suburban on the road. And so right then the phones say, hey, flash flood warnings. But I'm like, I've seen this before. Does that ever really happen? Well, right when I'm thinking, does that ever really happen? I see a car float by. Okay, and now I'm worried, right? And all of us in our family, we respond different. My, my wife starts, you know, she's saying, hey, this, she's logical and, and, and strategic. She's like, hey, we need to pull over. We need to see another way. Let's, let's check where the storm is, where it's going, right? My, my son, he just pulls his blanket over his head. He's like, I'll just hide. Uh, my other daughter is, is screaming her head off, crying, trusting her fears, like driven by emotions. And my oldest daughter goes, hey, everybody stop. Everybody stop, look at me, look at me, stop. And then she says it in such a commanding way that I'm like, okay, okay, what's up, you know, what? I mean, Weston pulls his blanket over his head, he's like, hey, you okay? You know, Finley stops crying for a second. Everybody, hey, she's like, look at me, look at me. She goes, we have to pray. She goes, the winds and waves obey him. He's more powerful than the storm. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He's more powerful than the storm, than the illness, diagnosis, the layoff, the relationship, the prodigal. He's more powerful than the circumstance, the situation, who you turn to in times of trouble says a whole lot about what you actually believe. The victory that we live in his protection is not just ever present, it's powerful. Verse nine, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Interesting that in the Egyptian account of this, it says that rodents showed up in the middle of the night and chewed up their spears and their bows, okay? That they desecrated them, which is fascinating. One thing too, I, I know that I haven't said anything for a while, but I've been trying to make sure this speeds up as much as we can, but um, bringing in accounts like that. So whenever you say, hey, this is like co-signing other cultural narratives as well, like bringing in what he did there. So when I heard this the first time, I already knew the cultural account of this because I've preached on this before. Um, but what was really interesting to me is that uh, he didn't bring that up when he first said, hey, there's other accounts of this. And I thought, oh man, you've got to bring up like that the other accounts don't mention angels, right? So it's really easy to be like, you know, the Israel, the, the account that Israel gives is that an angel showed up and defeated and, it's, you know, did all of these miraculous things. 
when the other accounts don't say that there's actually again the egyptian account says that you know rats came in and mice came in and destroyed it and you have to obviously there's there's a lot of rectifying that you have to kind of do there and be like well why does this account say this and the other one say this but the point is we we need to be honest about it and so i was really glad that here later on when he's giving the context of of this that he does at least bring in that the egyptian account states something differently now the end is the same right uh Sennacherib's troops are defeated and they have to leave um but whenever we do have accounts like this and i think I've mentioned his name before, Bruce Gore. Um, he has a playlist on YouTube. I'll try to link it below where he, he takes the history of the world and runs it alongside the history of the Bible. And Bruce is incredibly, I think, uh, down to earth and helpful. It's easy to listen to, very accessible. It's not like high brow theology sort of stuff. It's just high school level, really. And um, he, I bring that up to say that he does this really well, where he's, he tries to demonstrate how you have to be intellectually honest and um, like rectify some of these accounts. I think actually he mentions this exact account and he kind of talks through that a little bit. But all that to say this, again, as pastors, if you say there's another source, somebody can Google that source. You might as well just give them that source and what it says in the sermon so that, you know, again, it just builds trust. And I think this is helpful that he brought that up. Even, albeit later, he does bring it up here. Verse 10, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty, again it says, Almighty, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again it says, repeated, he is our fortress. If we look at his abilities, he scorches the earth. He breaks the tools we use to break people. He melts the best military technology of the time with fire. He makes war cease bringing peace. Two ways to bring peace. You can either change the heart of your enemy or take their life. And here in this account, it's B. 185,000 wiped out. 185,000 wiped out. And he says, be still and know that I am God. What does it look like living this life from a place of victory? It looks a lot like peace. Because in times of trouble, the last thing you want to do, the most counterintuitive reality is to be still. Like we're all going to nod our heads at that and be like, oh yeah, be still and know that he's God. You're going to leave here, trouble's going to hit. And the last thing you're going to think is like, I just need to go sit in my chair. I know that he is God, but that's what it says. Be still and know that he is God. So my third point, God's protection and power give peace to his people. God's protection and power give peace to his people. God's protection plus God's power equals your peace, that he is on your side. Uh, Philippians 4 says it like this, do, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God, that's God's peace, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign one, gives us his peace when we turn to him in prayer as our first act of concern that we turn to him in prayer so we don't lean on our control we find peace in his control we're not coping by checking bank accounts stock markets coinbase crypto we're not checking relationships make sure the job's still there the kids are still alive this is still happening in the first moment of trouble we turn to god we say god 
This is who you are. I know you are with me. You're a mighty fortress. You're a shelter, a refuge, an ever-present protection in times of danger. You're powerful. Whom shall I fear? And you're renewing your mind around that reality. You have to decide what you're going to trust in life right now. Hezekiah says in 2 Chronicles 32 to his people, to his army, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him, listen to this, with him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. He said, there are more with us. There's a stronger power with us than with him. Maybe you can't see it, but it's the heavenly host, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. I wasn't a believer until uh, my young adult years. So a lot of my stories are a little bit, you know, uh, of, of a misdirected youth. And, and so lots of fights. Uh, and, and I wasn't very good at it, which is really unfortunate. Um, got- again, I just want to bring this up, not for the sake of being like, hey, look at JP. Uh, telling stories again. I'm just saying that, again, every time we hear a story or every time we give a story, we're always looking for what should always be the point is bolstering what the story says or what the text says and hopefully bringing us back to that. So I'm always going to bring it up whenever a story comes up, say, does this add or distract? That's what, again, always what we're thinking as pastors when we decide to add them as congregants, hopefully what we're looking for is like what in this story connects to the text Does it help or does it hinder and then discarding or keeping based upon that. Got beat up a lot, but a fight, uh, you know, to give another account here in Waco now, college, um, I'm at a party pitching washers. You guys know, anybody still do that? We pitch washers. Oh, you guys are like, no, we're cornhole people. Okay. Well, back in my day, uh, we pitched washers. Okay. You like throw a washer into a little hole and, and I'm there pitching washers and this guy gets there like the biggest dude I've ever seen in my life. Huge. Like just came from the gym or something, you know, had creatine for breakfast. He walks up, he's with his little friend and, and he walks up and walks in front of me. Washer hits him in the leg. No big deal. It's a washer. It's like a quarter, right? Hits him in the leg. He walks right in front of the path of where we were throwing And he turns to me and he goes, you better watch where you're throwing that thing. And I'm like, I thought he was joking. I'm like, oh man, my bad. And he comes and he says, you think something's funny? And he gets on my, puts his finger right here. Like now, now it's physical. And I'm thinking like, he's got big hands. And all I can think about, I remember, like it was, I'm like, oh, this is going to hurt. I don't want this to hurt. It's going to hurt. I'm terrified. Like, just to show you my cards, I'm like, man, I got nothing on this dude. I'm scared, right? But just him and his little friend, well, I'm there with all my friends. And none of us are believers, you know. We're all up to no good. And one hits the elbow of the other. It's like, hey, JP's in trouble. They all come up. I mean, there's like 16 of them. <laughs> you know, they circle. And he gives me another one. Like, now they're all around him, right? He goes, no, you think something's funny. And I was like, you know, come to think of it, uh, it's kind of funny now. I was like, look around. There's more with me than there are with you. That's what Hezekiah is saying. Hey, there's more with us than there is with them. That's what Elisha said to his servant. Hey, there's more with us than there are with them. Lord, open their eyes. Let them see your angel armies. At any given time, in any moment of your life, there's more with you than there are with them. Right? God controls your reputation. 
He controls what others think of you. He controls the hearts of kings like watercourses in his hands. He directs them wherever he pleases. He is God. Whatever this dude's gonna do to me, he's not gonna do it long. Whatever he's gonna do, he's not gonna do it long because there's more with me than there are with him. In summary, in summary, God's protection and God's power leads to our peace. Here's what I want you to know. The song, we are the champion. We, are, we love to play that song in the wake of victory. We are the champion. Y'all are the loser. We are the champion. The word champion in Hebrew, it translates directly as the man who goes between the spaces. Now, I, I want to stop this <clears throat> really quick because we're really close to the end. It's uh, less than 10 minutes left in this sermon. Um, this here, this part here, I want to bring out and be like, this is really good. Now, again, you cannot, there's no way you're going to be able to work this into every sermon. This works well for the text that JP is using. So he utilizes the text well in order to bring out this point. I would always say, again, one of the three things we look for is the gospel preached. Now, there's sometimes you kind of have to just say, here's the text, here's the gospel, and then connect the two. Sometimes it just flows really naturally out of it. Um, you just kind of have to read the text again, as far as how, how you're going to in, insert the gospel. This here though, that he does is a wonderful combination of bringing out the text, bringing out words, what words mean, and then connecting them to the gospel. So I'm going to get out the way because when I heard this, I was like, this is, this is, man, this is good. As far as how he connects the dots from the text into what we see here with his sort of leading into a gospel message. So just <laughs> I'm just like this is good. This, this part's good. They would call it the go-between. And here's what that means. It's a person who fights a battle on behalf of an army. This was a practice at times. You saw this with Goliath. Goliath has the whole Philistine army behind him, but he goes, hey, I'll fight by myself. You send one person and I'll fight and, and we'll fight a war, just the two of us. This is the champion, the go-between, the champion from Gath, it says. David was the champion, the go-between. David said, hey, I'll fight on behalf of the Israelites, right? Uh, he, he's the champion, all pointing to one champion, the go-between, a person who 700 years after Sennacherib shows up to Judah, Hezekiah, 700 years later, just inside the very wall that he stood outside of was a champion, Jesus Christ. He said, I will fight a battle on behalf of all of them. He is the go-between. He says, I will overcome evil in one fail swoop, in one evening, the setting of the sun. All sins will be forgiven of anyone who trusts in me. I will defeat the enemy. So you and I walk in victory because of the champion. We, we don't sing, we are the champion. We say, he is the champion. We know the champion. Okay, I've got to stop. Even though this point's good, man, the, the, the piano sent in the back. Just progressively getting louder. I will never not find that funny, ever. Jesus is the 
champion. We have a champion, my friends. We don't have to fight till the end. We have a champion, a go-between, someone who fought a battle on our behalf. They sang this song in the wake of victory to remind themselves that God has entrusted victory to them. The way that we do this today is communion. It's how we reflect upon the gospel. Communion is not just this traditional thing that you grew up in church doing. You can take communion all day long and it is just bad grape juice and and a, a, you know. So what's interesting here, so again, let's stop the point in regards to hero being the go-between, presenting the gospel that way. That point was good. Now, what we're going to see here is really interesting. And when you go to a church, how they do communion gives you a lot of insight on um, sort of Sorry, I had to sneeze there. Uh, gives you a lot of insight on how they view the sacrament, right? And so if you're from, like, your background is going to, like, start showing uh, during this part in regards to the sacrament, how it's taken, all of that. So let's listen to him talk about it and get back into it. You know, a host that was put together in a factory, if you don't stop, and reflect on Jesus and invite his presence. Acknowledge that he lives in you and realize that he sat there with his closest friends and told them what was going to happen to himself. He was a champion, the go-between, the one who fought on their behalf. And so if you're not a believer, no sense in partaking in this. And if you know that right now you are in a conflict that's unresolved with another brother or sister in Christ, it's a good time to abstain and to prioritize, will you please forgive me for, or I forgive you for. But if you're at a place where it's time to reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he fought on your behalf, that night as he sat with his friends, the night before he was betrayed, he... I do want to mention before we get too far away from the points he just made, like the two points he made were good in the sense that if you're a believer, like there's no sense in you taking this because this has nothing to do with you. Historically speaking, just like a nice little historical fact here, I think it's Nick Needham in his book mentions it referencing, uh, I forget which early church father he references, but unbelievers weren't even allowed in the service during communion and prayer because they had no why? Why would you be there? There, you have no. There's no reason for you to partake in this. You don't know. You don't understand what's going on. So unbelievers weren't even. Uh, prayer and communion were always saved till the end of service, so that the believers would stay, the baptized believers would stay, and the unbelievers would leave. And um, so his whole like, if you're not a believer, there's no sense in you taking this. Like, don't <laughs> is good. There's some churches that are like, we're open communion, and like, it doesn't matter. Um, and then also his purposefully pulling out the, if you have a sin against a brother that's unresolved, abstain from it because, uh, I don't even, I forget the text, but it's in the scriptures, um, that you shouldn't, if you're in prayer before the Lord and remember a sin against a brother, leave the altar and go rectify that, right? So this is what he's referencing. I forget again what the reference is, but it, that's what it says. And so he says, Hey, but if those two things aren't you and you are a believer, it's time to do this in remembrance of him, right? Now, again, we're not going to go into the whole history of the sacraments because we're already an hour and 20 minutes into this sermon review. But the point is how, what tradition you grew up with is going to sort of 
give you a lens on how to view communion. And in this sense, it may be right in line with your tradition. And in another sense, this may be totally different than your tradition, but recognize that. He took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. It's, yeah, I'm going to die for you so that you can live. I'm gonna take the punishment that you deserve upon myself so that you can have the inheritance that I deserve as an eternal, perfect God. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ represented or would have been there by a chalice as wine that they would have all cupped, that they would have all drank from and he picks up that and he teaches from it. He says, this cup, this is the cup of my new covenant. What he's saying is, I'm gonna do a new work. You, you no longer need to trust in the sacrifice of bulls and, and rams. I'm gonna be the one and done, the ultimate high priest. My blood will be poured out for you and atone now for your sins. That means coverage your sins so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins, but he sees my payment. He's reminded of the payment that he issued on behalf of me, Jesus Christ. Blood was poured out for you, the blood of Christ. Father, as we move to singing this song, would you help us, even as we stand here, to be still and know that you are God, to be reminded that you are the God of hosts, the God of angel armies the ruler of heaven and earth, of your kingdom. And as we sit in the trials and the tribulations and the circumstances and the situations that tend to overwhelm us, or if we look at the ways, would you remind us that you're the one who calmed the sea? When we go to that quiet time with your word, would, it, would you make it a meaningful time reminding us of who you are, what you're capable of, your protection and your power. We're so thankful for the champion and your son, Jesus Christ, who overcame evil on our behalf. We love you, Lord. And we sing to you now in Jesus' name. Okay, so that was the sermon right so that was the redo so let's walk through it let's check out the notes these are my notes for this right so harris creek was the church i saw that afterwards psalm 46 was the main passage i think we all know that he did reference eventually second kings 18 and second chronicles 32 he did briefly reference philippians 4 chapter 6 or chapter 4 verse 6 his main points again protection power peace i've got them mixed up over here but i do have them correct over here and so what we were looking at is an expository sermon where he worked through the text, giving us some background out of the background text in 2 Kings. He did reprove and rebuke, saying, hey, do you believe in God? Do you trust in him? Do you actually do that? And then really exhorted people to trust in the Lord based upon the psalm, based upon how we know, you know the Lord has operated throughout time. He did give us context, which is exactly what we want. Uh, and then he did tell stories that sort of brought out, hopefully, the trust and the power 
of the Lord. So let's walk through really quick, right? What are the three things? Did he read the text? Yes, he did. Did he expound the text using the exegesis uh, from culture and context? Yeah, he brought up that a few times. And three, did he preach the gospel of Christ? Yes, he did. Now, methodology, um, was there anything I would have done different? I think I've mentioned that, right? Just using the screen, utilizing the screen a little bit better for the second King's whole story because we were just sort of listening to him, trusting there. I think, again, just anchored in the text helps us a little bit more. Uh, the story thing, we all know I have a thing with stories, so, you know, leave that or take that. But overall, I think that was good. Now, um, in fact, I, I think that was a good walkthrough of the of Psalm 46 in general. Now, going back on um, the sermon that uh, isn't, uh, you know, on the list that we've pulled it, I will link it below so you have some sort of reference point to watch if you care to watch another hour plus sermon review. I think what we're learning from these rewinds, though, is that one, we shouldn't base an entire perception on a pastor on one sermon. I wouldn't want anybody to base a perception of me on one sermon. But secondly, that we do sometimes preach sermons that aren't as good as others, and we just need to recognize that. And that's why, hopefully, if you're a pastor watching these sermon reviews, um, you can learn along the way. I've learned a ton from watching all of these other pastors, and I'm hoping to sort of process through that with you as we watch these, as well as learn myself on these. As congregants, as those that sit in local churches every week and listen to pastors, again, the reason we're doing these isn't to say, hey, who's the best pastor? Who's the worst pastor? Let's blast these pastors, because plenty of people do that. I don't find that helpful. That's why we do a variety of pastors that you recommend and do the full sermon. I know this hour and a half plus for you guys is a lot of time to dedicate, but that's why we do them because it's not about blasting them or taking them out of context. It's saying, Hey, what should we listen for? Why should we listen for it? And is this helpful? And that's the hope here, guys. So if it was hopefully helpful to you, make sure you leave a like that helps the algorithm a lot, share it with other people, or you can just share it yourself with other people. And if you think that uh, there was something I was unfair on or a point that really stood out to you that you thought was good, make sure you leave that in the comment section below because that always helps me process two things. And maybe somebody else wants to have a conversation about the same thing you did as well. Guys, again, thank you for watching, supporting, and doing all the cool things you do. We'll talk to you next week.